Our gospel reading this morning is from the 13th chapter of St. Luke. At this very hour, some Pharisees came to Jesus and said, Get away from me from here, for Herod wants to kill you. He said to them, You go and you tell that fox for me, listen, I am casting out demons and I am performing cures today and tomorrow, and on the third day I finish my work. Yet today, tomorrow and the next day, I must be on my way, because it is impossible for a prophet to be killed outside of Jerusalem. Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often have I desired to gather your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and and you were not willing. See, your house is left to you. And I tell you, you will not see me until the time comes when you say, Blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. This is the gospel of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. So it is so very good, isn't it, to welcome Lori and James to, uh, to, uh, to St. John's today. We are so thrilled to have you, and I look forward to just uh, lots of good relationship building. And uh, I mean, it does feel like, I know Carol has mentioned this before, it feels a little bit like Christmas Day because we've been in conversation for, I don't know, eight or nine months, and, and uh, now it's arrived. So we're thrilled for you, we're thrilled for us, and quite honestly, you poor folks who have had to listen to me preach every week for nine months, you now get a break. So <laughs> I feel good for you too. A, uh, a Texan decided to write a book about famous churches around this country, and, and so he bought a plane ticket and took a trip to Orlando. That was the first stop that he was going to make. He was going to visit a lot of different places around the country and just to see uh, some churches that he thought looked to be outstanding places of worship, beautiful architecture. Everything about it was just exactly what he was looking for. He's going to take lots of pictures, take lots of notes, meet the, meet the leaders of those churches. Anyway, he decided to start in Orlando. And on the first day that he was there, he went inside of the church that he had chosen, this beautiful church inside a, uh, a, a church right in the middle of Orlando, he started taking all kinds of pictures. And then he noticed, oddly enough, a, a golden telephone that was mounted on the wall and a sign underneath it that said, uh, $10,000 per call. Now, he was intrigued, of course, and he asked the hip young pastor what the phone was used for, and, and the pastor replied that it was a direct line to heaven and that, and that for $10,000 you could talk to God. Well, the man thanked the young pastor, and he went on his way. Next stop was in Atlanta. There, in the middle of Atlanta, beautiful, uh, large cathedral, he saw the same golden telephone and the sign underneath it, same sign. He wondered if it was the same one that was in Orlando, and so he asked the priest what its purpose was, and he said, well, of course, this is a direct line to heaven, and for $10,000, you, even you, could talk to God. Well, thank you, the man said rather curiously. He then traveled to Indianapolis, and then Washington, D.C., and Philadelphia, Boston, and all those different places, New York, and in every single church, he saw the same golden telephone with the same $10,000 per call sign underneath it. Fascinating, he thought. Well, his next stop was Charlotte, North Carolina, where he had heard about a beautiful Lutheran church in a town just north of there called Salisbury. 
Upon arriving, he could not believe his eyes when he saw, can you believe this, the same golden telephone, but this time the sign underneath it read, free. Well, he was surprised. So he asked the particularly good-looking pastor who was there (laughs) about the sign. Sir, I've traveled all over America, and I've seen this same golden telephone in almost every single congregation. I've been told that it's a direct line to heaven, but that the price was $10,000 per call. Why is it so cheap here? The pastor smiled and answered, friend, you're in Salisbury now. It's a local call. (laughs) Again, welcome. We're so glad you all are here. All right, friends, repeat after me, bring me a heifer. That's your memory verse for today, so we'll talk about that in a moment, bring me a heifer. I'm going to preach today from our first reading, which is from Genesis chapter 15, which represents one of the most important stories in all of the Old Testament, a foundational story that helps us to better understand who God is and God's relationship with you and with me. It's the story of God who's forming a covenant uh, with a man named Abram, who will be renamed Abraham, and you will hear me use both those uh, names today in this sermon, Abram and Abraham. Admittedly, and if you listened carefully to the reading this morning, um, it's one of the most bizarre stories in the Bible, and yet it's so critical for us to know, and so let's take a look at it. The story actually, we're Genesis chapter 15. In fact, I'd love for you to open up either your bulletins or your Bibles, because we're going to walk through this story and love for you to look at it carefully. The story actually begins in three chapters earlier, at the end of Genesis 11, when Abram first comes onto the scene. God introduces Himself to Abram and his his family by inviting them to to move to a brand new land, which uh, what has been called the promised land. That's what we know that land to be called. Then God makes three promises to Abram that He will make His name great, that He will make of Him a great nation, and that He will have descendants that are more numerous than the stars in heaven. Abram was excited, I mean, really excited, because up until this point, he and his wife, Sarah, they didn't have any children. They were childless. In fact, Sarah was barren, but now filled with all kinds of hope. Jump to chapter 15. That's the beginning of today's reading. It's many, many years later, and they're still childless. God comes to Abram again, and this is where we pick up in this conversation with the Lord. So, verse 2, take a look. Abram says, Lord… Now, after all these years, as you can tell, I'm still, we are still childless. Therefore, I suppose the one who will inherit my estate will be my servant, Eliezer of Damascus. Do you hear the frustration in his voice? I mean, probably. We don't, we don't have the privilege of knowing what sort of emotion is is swirling around in that particular moment, but you can tell. You're reading between the lines. There's frustration. Maybe there's a little bit of resignation as if he's saying, I, look, I, why did he even really hope for this? I mean, we're old. Uh, it's well along in our lives. Um, so maybe there's some resignation that it's never going to happen in any way. Certainly some exhaustion. It's hard being Abraham. <laughs> and then maybe, just maybe, there's a tough question that's underneath it all, a question that maybe you've asked. Uh, I know a lot of people have asked. Maybe you're in a place in your life, a season in your life where you've been asking that a lot lately. Who knows? But it's this very difficult question. It's rooted in this desire to trust the Lord, but, but wondering, is God someone who can be trusted? Is God someone who can be trusted? Well, thankfully, 
God is very quick to respond. Verse uh, 5, take a look. This man, <laughs> he's talking about Eliezer of Damascus. <laughs> no, 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 no. He's not going to be your heir, but a son who is your own flesh and blood will be your heir. Then, then God took Abram outside and, and said, look up to the sky, Abraham, and, and count the stars, if indeed you can count them. Then he said, so shall your offspring be. Beautifully, in verse 6, uh, Abram says, or Abram believed the Lord, right? And yet, what's next, I think, is particularly interesting, because Abram clearly still needs something more, which is why he asks in verse 8, but how will I know, right? He didn't ask that question when, when, when God first mentioned to him in chapter 12, beginning of chapter 12, that he was going to be uh, the, have heirs more numerous than the stars in heaven. He didn't say, but how will I know, right? But now there's that, that extra little prove it sort of moment. That's when God makes one of the most exciting statements in Scripture. You know what it is, right? Because it's your memory verse this week. Bring me a heifer. Say that. Bring me a heifer. Verse 9. A heifer, by the way, is a young female cow that has not yet born a calf. A heifer. It's an exciting moment in this story, and here's why. Because God, unbeknownst to us, because we're living so many thousands of years later, God was getting ready to formalize His promise to Abraham through a, a ritual, a ritual that would have been widely known in those days, not widely known to us. And Abraham knew exactly what God meant when He said, bring me a heifer, because Abraham was essentially a businessman. And, and this was a common ritual in those days, made between two people who were forming a covenant relationship with one another, a covenant, a promise, uh, a contract that they're forming. But this covenant was particularly unique in that it represented two identities becoming one, a, a new identity that the two parties would share forever and ever. And so you can see why that would be exciting for Abraham, right? I mean, that's serious business. I mean, neither party would ever enter into that covenant and perform that ritual. They would never do it lightly. Why? Because according to this covenant, according to this ritual, when you share an identity with someone, that means everything about them, everything they have, all of their resources, you have access to because they are now yours. The only thing that's similar to the, that these days is what? Marriage. Marriage is somewhat similar. When a new husband and wife give up their independent identities and they find a, a common identity that they share, a shared name, shared families, shared home, shared bank account, bring me a heifer is what God says. And Abraham had no reason in the world to ever imagine that God would use those words, that any part of their conversation would ever include those words, that God would want to enter into that kind of covenant relationship. Because, But once God spoke those words, <laughs> Abraham knew exactly what he was going to do. He did not want to waste any time whatsoever. So he, oh, off he goes. He grabs a heifer and all the other animals that are identified by the Lord, you know, a goat and a ram and, and a dove and young and pigeons and all the rest. Now, at this point, by the way, um, it, we, we have not had a content warning, but there's sort of a little bit of a content warning. So, if you're listening or, or if you're watching online, you need to know that what happens next is a little bit gruesome and a little bit gory. Just be prepared, right? 
Um, but it's straight from the mouth of God, so it's okay. Abraham is told to slaughter the animals in the field. He cuts them wide open from nose to tail, and he lays all of those pieces in the field. It's a bloody, gory process, not just of the animals themselves, but, but Abraham likewise is filled and covered in blood, the gore of the moment. I warned you. The animal parts are then laid on the ground in parallel lines, and according to the ritual, the two parties are to walk between those two bloody animal parts. It symbolically shows that each person is making a commitment, a a sacrificial commitment to give up his life, to give up his identity for the sake of a brand new identity that is being forged with his covenant partner. Now, keep in mind, this is largely an illiterate society, so so they weren't ever, they, they didn't gather together lawyers and maybe go to the bank or find a witness or something to sign a contract. That's what we would do today. But in those days, they, they, they performed rituals. These were public rituals, and the ritual was just like signing a legal contract. They were bound to each other through this ritual. So Abraham slaughters the animals, lays them out accordingly, and then he waits. I don't know if you noticed, but in the, in the story, it's sort of something interesting happens. Darkness falls. Now, we can assume that Abraham is exhausted. It ain't easy, I wouldn't think. I've never done it, but slaughtering animals and laying them out in, in two parallel lines, butchering the animals yourself. He didn't have anyone else to help him. It was all Abraham. He's wiped out, no doubt. Then Verse 12, one of the most amazing moments in Scripture, as darkness falls, do you see, God causes a deep sleep to fall upon Abram. Interesting. Because have you ever noticed that that good stuff always seems to happen in the Bible when we hear that phrase, Adam, first part of Genesis, you remember Adam? When Adam um, falls asleep, God forms what? Eve. Or Jacob, another critical figure in the Old Testament. When Jacob falls asleep, he wrestles with the Lord. When Joseph, you know, the earthly father of Jesus, when Joseph was asleep, God tells him all about King Herod's plan and, and warns him to take his family, Jesus and Mary, to out of Bethlehem to a, to a new land to escape. So verse 12, Abram falls asleep, which means something good is getting ready to happen. But what? See, up until that point, Abram had understood the covenant ritual as a two-way street. There are two partners, and they both have an equal responsibility in this covenant making. One, what one did, the other did as well. They would mirror each other so that one would not gain an advantage over the other. But did you notice? I mean, when Abram's asleep, those rules change. I mean, now it's God and God alone. God by Himself appears in the presence of a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch. Those images are going to appear later in Scripture representing God Himself. I mean, as you know, probably there are no lighters, you know, little click lighters in those days. There are no matches. All, all you had was a fire pot and burning embers of the last fire. So every community had to have a fire pot just to survive. This fire pot represented God's presence to them. And notice what it does. This fire pot, it passes. The fire pot, the presence of God, passes between these two parallel lines of dead, bloody animal parts. What is going on here? What's going on is that God is forming a covenant with 
Abram and saying that he will be one with Abram forever. And you heard me describe this ritual, right? That in the ritual, normally both parties walk between the pieces to show their mutual commitment to the covenant. But in this case, who walks between the pieces? Only God. Where's Abram? He's asleep. Here's the point. I know that was a long way of describing this one moment in Scripture, but here's the point. By God's own initiative, they become one. Nothing that Abram earned, nothing that Abram deserved, nothing that Abram merited or gained, the decision was God's and God's alone. Now, think about how profound that is. That at this moment, Abram is now one with God. I mean, it's it's an astonishing gift of grace because now he can meet God eye to eye. Now he can speak to God as if they are one. Isn't that amazing? I mean, God doesn't have to do that, but he does willingly and and lovingly. And I just wonder sometimes if Abram, after that event, sat down around the campfire at night, and, and you know, just when the time at the end of the day when you're just starting to think and wonder, and he's wondering, how could the God of the universe give up His life for me? Uh, How could He be so committed to me that He's prepared to die for me? I mean, how could the God of the universe somehow be born into my identity and become one with me? How, How could the one who flung the galaxies into space cover himself with the blood of this ancient ritual for me. How could that be? It's a mystery, quite honestly. It's one of those moments in our relationship with God that we just chalk up as as a mystery. We'll never fully understand. We're incapable of fully understanding it, but that's what's being said here. And friends, I hope that that you're approaching this sort of story with eyes that are wide open and filled with amazement, that your hearts are just swelling with the goodness of God, because at the, at the very beginning, what we're learning is that God committed to walk into the middle of death on our behalf. It's astonishing that at the very beginning of the story of the covenant, God commits Himself to something that we know will inevitably lead to death, bloody, gory death. But that's what this covenant is all about. And here's the thing. It happens while we are asleep. We've done nothing. We have nothing to do with it. He does it all. He sacrifices it all. And he does it for the people who will be called the children of Abraham. And I hope you know that means you. It's amazing. One final, and I promise, brief point. One of the great potholes of life, at least in my experience in ministry, is the many, many times that we misunderstand who God is. When we look to God as, I don't know, maybe sometimes it's as a distant deity or a God who is irrelevant or a God who is unconcerned, 
when we assume that our relationship with God is defined more by what we do than by what God does, when we assume that our identity in life is defined more by our own name or our own occupation or our own possessions. Look, let's be clear what this story is being very, very clear about. Your very identity is fully wrapped up in God's identity, period, which means that everything that God has is yours. That's what that means. Everything that God has access to, you now have access to because you are a child of the King, which means that you are the heirs of a kingdom. You have inherited it all. It's amazing, isn't it? So, as you walk from this place today, you have every right. In fact, you have every reason to walk as children of that king, to lift your head, to stand tall, not with arrogance, but with confidence that you are loved, yes, that you have a place in this world, yes, that you, you are a valuable and necessary role in this kingdom, and that wherever you are, whoever you are, you are a product of God's unbounded grace. That, friends, is something you can trust. Now, because that's true, and it is. May I offer you a challenge? That wherever you go as children of the King, do this. Represent your King. In all that you do, in all that you say, to whomever you will encounter this week, and whatever God places you this week, all that you do, all that you say every day of your life, represent your King. Amen.